The comments and views expressed on The Moore Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The Moore Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. Hello and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, my guest is Richard C. Holglund. Now, Richard is a former space science museum creator, a former NASA consultant, and during the historic Apollo missions to the moon, was science advisor to Walter Cronkite and CBS News. For over 20 years, Holglund has been leading an outside scientific team in a critically acclaimed independent analysis of possibly intelligently designed artifacts on Mars. Richard and his team's investigators have been quietly extended to include over 30 years of previously hidden data from NASA, Soviet and Pentagon missions to the moon. Richard C. Hoagland, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. Now Richard, just for the audience, just tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I started out in that weird world called mainstream. I was a museum curator for many years uh, back in Springfield, Massachusetts, at the dawn of the space age. I got very intrigued, and I started sending uh, you know, letters, and we didn't have the Internet then, and making phone calls to JPL as these various planetary missions were getting underway. Mariner 4, which is the first U.S. unmanned mission to Mars, went to Mars in the summer of 1965. And I put together a huge uh, kind of exposition or celebration at the museum. They'd never done anything like this before. We actually had an open night where we brought people in in the middle of the night. We had transcontinental phone lines to JPL as the spacecraft was flying by. We had live commentary. Um, I set up the first atmospheric laser link between the museum and a broadcast facility, an NBC broadcast facility on a mountain uh, 10 miles outside of town in Springfield, Massachusetts, through the air with the help of Perkin Elmer, which was a major uh, instrument and high-tech uh, aerospace company down in uh, southern Connecticut. And the technicians came up, and they put in all the gadgets and telescopes, and we actually transmitted part of the program because we did five hours of radio for a local affiliate, WTIC in Hartford, which was also an NBC affiliate at that time, um, to memorialize man's first flyby of the planet Mars with this little spacecraft called Mariner 4. And we had some special celebrity guests, including a gentleman that I had uh, known distantly for some time uh, named J. Allen Hynek a name that you might remember. Absolutely. Um, and it was Alan Hynek, of course, who was an astronomer at Northwestern University, as well as being a consultant to um, uh, the Air Force's Project Blue Book. And I had a lot of time <clears throat> that night, because he was physically in, in Springfield. I had a lot of time to discuss with him, you know, things that go bump in the night, UFOs and his case files and the investigations, and it really kind of set a tone because it was simultaneous with the broadcast uh, of, of, you know, my career in terms of things that would get me noticed later on. Um, and it was also at the dawn of the of literally a manned and unmanned space flight to various places that we'd only dreamed about as kids reading books and, you know, going to the library and taking out textbooks and, and popular science books on, on you know, uh, unusual topics. It was a very epical event, both for the people who were listening, as well as my own career, <clears throat> and it kind of set me on a, on a path that later on would, would manifest in some of the things we're going to discuss in a few minutes. But it also got me noticed by the CBS television network, and I suddenly one day, years later, got a call, and it basically was a producer working for Walter Cronkite, who called me up and said, um, we're helping... NASA, go to the moon. We're covering going to the moon. Would you like to come and work for us? And I said, you know, into the phone, like the old Bill Cosby routine, come on, who is this? Because I thought it was someone playing a joke. Yeah. And it wasn't. I wound up at 23 uh, as science advisor to Walter Cronkite, 
the most trusted man in America, uh, working with people in, in, in Britain, like Richard Dimbleby at the BBC, uh, meeting a whole bunch of extraordinarily intriguing people and being in on the ground floor as we 40-some years ago now, 42 years this summer, went to the moon for the first time. So I've had a very uh, solid mainstream career, which had a hint early on that I'd be looking at things that weren't exactly in the center of the road, and that's what's led me into a whole series of other investigations, which have culminated in uh, you know, a couple of New York Times bestsellers, uh, in being consultant to a late-night radio show in the United States called Coast to Coast AM, and being literally at the cutting edge of what NASA is about to do next, now that the 30-year shuttle program has come to an extraordinary and very graceful end. So, Richard, when did you realize, though, that something was wrong with NASA? Well, that was a very slow process. When I was back with, with um, CBS, <clears throat> my first major hint that this agency, which I couldn't understand why all the senior people around me, and I'm not talking just to CBS because in those days we had a very close personal relationship with everybody in the big three. Remember, we only had three networks. Fox was only a distant glimmer on the horizon, and Sky Television didn't exist. And so it was ABC, CBS, and NBC. And I kind of wondered, you know, as we would meet in Hurley's Bar, or we would meet on various remotes, or we would meet at the Cape to cover a launch or something, um, I wondered why they would, behind the scenes, behind NASA's back, speak of NASA as never a straight answer. N-A-S-A, never a straight answer. That was, and these were senior people, like, you know, I remember I was just a newbie. I was not dry behind the ears, and I kept wondering, why are they being so disrespectful of NASA? I mean, to me, NASA was, you know, as Reagan used to say, this shining city on a hill. Why were they dissing NASA in, you know, in every place except when they were talking directly to NASA people? Well, I, I, I had a real interesting moment on a Sunday uh, afternoon as a bunch of us were all gathered in the executive producer's office waiting for the astronauts to do a press conference um, on their way back from the moon. I forget which mission it was. And it was scheduled at a certain time. So I think it was on a Sunday, and there was nobody, of course, working at the bureau in, in 57th Street there in New York at the, uh, the broadcast center. So we were there, you know, we were, you know, tieless and coatless and just kind of sitting around waiting for this thing to begin, watching it on our, our, our satellite feed, because we were a pioneer in those days of actually satellite transmission from other points in, in, our, in our long extended coverage, including at ships at sea. When they would land on an aircraft carrier, we would actually take a, a dish, and we would have technicians and spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars so we could have an uplink, because in those days, you didn't have commercial satellites. You had Telstar, you had Syncom, you had Early Bird, you had these experimental NASA spacecraft that someday would presage the whole vast, you know, commercial communication system that we now take for granted. Well, back then it was the pioneering day, so we were pioneering several different elements all at the same time. And so we're sitting around, you know, on on um, the executive producer's couch um, this Sunday afternoon. He even broke out a nice fine bottle of, of whiskey from his secret stash, and we're sitting there and we're kind of raising glasses and toasting the mission and all that, waiting for our folks to get a shot at answering or rather asking questions of the astronauts. Because the first thing that was going to be happening that had never happened in the history of NASA before is that ordinary news people, men and women from the networks, were going to be able to directly talk with astronauts in space across something like 100,000 miles as they were coming home. NASA had been very controlling up until that point during Mercury and Gemini and Apollo, where they would funnel all communications through one guy, one astronaut. They called him the CAPCOM, which was short for capsule communicator back from the days of Mercury when the spacecraft looked like a capsule. And so the CAPCOM was the single point that NASA would use to basically keep communications on the straight and narrow and not confuse the astronauts. And, you know, in those days it was so dangerous that you had to be very careful that while you were doing something like a press conference, yeah. something major like a technical problem that could kill them didn't you know, wind up 
screwing everything up and, and endangering the lives of the crew. So NASA was very controlling about how the astronauts got in touch with Earth. And so this was a break with precedent. This was absolutely the first time in history that ordinary newsmen, including like Walter, were able to talk directly into space to astronauts in space coming back from the moon. So we're waiting and waiting and waiting for this press conference to begin. And, you know, being the technical guy, I looked at the specs and the antennas and where the Earth was, and there were no technical impediments. <clears throat> and then the public affairs guy got on the um, uh, public address system, which was out, going out over the nation to the television networks that were, of course, carrying all this live back then, three networks. Um, and he announced that they had to wait for the astronauts to be in communication because the moon and the astronaut uh, spacecraft, the Apollo spacecraft, had to rise above the mountains that were ringing the ground station at Goldstone, California, so they could basically have line-of-sight radio transmission. And I looked at the screen. I looked at all my folks and guys sitting around in this office just having a, a Sunday afternoon party yeah. with their glasses and the whiskey, and I looked at the executive producer and I said, there's something wrong with that. That's not, that's not right. Now remember, I'm 23, right? Even though the network is paying me, I'm only 23. What the hell do I know, right? So they looked at me, oh, come on, Dick, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's just NASA. You know, they'll, they'll get their act together. So I, I literally took an envelope on this executive producer's desk, and I started scribbling some numbers. And then I held out the envelope because I was seated in the chair in front of his desk, which had a straight shot of the screen, and he was, his name was Wessler, Robert Wessler. He went on to become the president of CBS News for the network. Uh, and then he went on to help Ted Turner create CNN. And I said, Robert, you've got to look at this. And I showed him my numbers. I said, if NASA's telling us the truth, those mountains around Goldstone, around this tracking station receiving the signal, would have to be 5,000 miles high. They're lying. And he looked at me, and he didn't believe me. This is the guy who's paying me to give him information, and he didn't believe me because why would NASA tell us a lie? This is an agency that in the, in the back rooms they talked about as never a straight answer, but they couldn't bring themselves to believe that they would lie about something so obvious and major and so visible. It turned out later that one of my friends at ABC who was a sterling space pioneer journalist named um, uh, Jules Bergman, had overslept in his motel in Houston. He was going to be one of the guys who was going to be part of this huge historic first-time news people get to talk to the astronauts coming home from the moon. Yeah. And NASA yeah. literally ground everything to a halt so that Jules Bergman, who had overslept in his motel, and I know this happens because it happened to me in, at CBS in New York for a major mission, you know, like two or three missions earlier where the hotel didn't even uh, claim that I was even registered when the network tried to get hold of me and get me down for the coverage. So I knew it could happen. He overslept. They didn't call him. He didn't get the call, and he was late. So they held everything in suspension until Jules could get his clothes on and rush over to the Space Center and literally be on camera talking to the astronauts for the first time for the ABC television network in history, and they covered for him with a lie. Yeah. That was my baptism where I realized this shining city on a hill that we thought of as NASA would, in fact, if they felt it necessary, they would tell a bold-faced lie to the press, the American people, to the world to serve their own interests. And if they that can lie about lie. that, they can lie about yeah. anything, I suppose. Exactly. Of course, a little years later, the, I found out the lies went deeper and deeper and deeper. And But that was, in that experience, my, my shock that they would twist the truth on something so trivial. I mean, why not just reset the press conference, uh, say, you know, there's been some kind of a glitch. But they literally said it was because the spacecraft had to rise over the mountains, uh, ringing Goldstone, which allowed me access to the physics that proved they were lying. So uh, this was the sort of uh, the, the starting point to start you on this journey that you've took. And uh, obviously not, you've written the book Dark Mission, which was, I believe, a New York Times bestseller. 
Yep, certainly um, was. So let's just go straight into Dark Mission, and we'll come back to some of these other points that you've picked up, but we'll try to, if they fit into the, the, the amount of time we've got. So, so just tell us about Dark Mission, and what are some of the secrets that you've discovered about NASA? Well, the, the major thing, which I think is, is important for everyone listening to understand, is that for, for decades, for 50 years, half a century, NASA has been represented to us as a civilian space agency. Back at the dawn of the space age, back in the 50s, when Sputnik shocked all of us and Americans went into paroxysms of guilt and embarrassment and trying desperately to catch up to the Russians because the Cold War was in full flight, um, the military services here were all fighting with each other over who would control space because, of course, space represented in the old military parlance high ground. You know, first, first uh, rule in battle get the high ground, and therefore you shoot down on your enemy, and he's at a disadvantage, and you're going to win. Well, space represented metaphorically as well as physically back then the high ground. If we could dominate space or the Russians dominate space, ultimately whoever dominated space would dominate the world, and there was a really pitched battle between East and West to dominate the planet. People these days don't remember, but we used to face nuclear warheads across the, the, the North Pole, something like 50,000 of them that could annihilate within half an hour when we got ICBMs flying back in the 60s, um, the entire human race. We could have become a burning cinder at a moment's notice, half an hour to fly those missiles between Russia and the United States, and we could have been a cinder, and they could have been a cinder because we would have had retaliation, what they call MAD, you know, Mutual Assured Destruction, which was an insane name. Anyway, that was the world that I grew up in, so the high ground was everything, and, and you can imagine psychologically how Americans felt when suddenly they no longer dominated the high ground after World War II. Absolutely. But we had a general, <clears throat> Dwight Eisenhower, who was president at that time. And Eisenhower tried to play down the huge military advantage of putting the first satellite in orbit, a la Sputnik, gave to the Soviet Union compared to the United States. And we were doing everything to catch up, catch up, catch up. Well, as part of this catch-up, we had all kinds of programs designed to ferret out what the Soviet Union was really doing, including a proposal that uh, the president, President Eisenhower, uh, proposed to Khrushchev, who was then chairman of the Soviet Union back then, the Communist Party, which was what he called open skies. Well, open skies never, never, never was achieved. Um, instead, we had to, on our side, through the CIA, create a series of clandestine satellites, reconnaissance satellites, the first spy satellites in the history of, of, the, of you know, modern, modern history, modern world. And they flew in a project called Corona. Well, when Eisenhower left office, which was in the election of, of 1960, which was the election that brought John Kennedy into office and had defeated Nixon, uh, Eisenhower's vice president, who was running, of course, to assume, you know, the presidency after his his uh, predecessor Eisenhower was forced to to resign because of the two-term law. Um, Eisenhower gave a very strange speech, where he basically warned us about the military-industrial complex and this creeping militarism, which extended to the press and the Iron Triangle, the the. Uh, aerospace and defense contractors, and, of course, the Hill, the Capitol Hill, you know, Republicans and Democrats on the, in the Senate and the House. He warned of the military-industrial complex and how, if we weren't careful, we would lose our freedoms because of this creeping control that the military-industrial complex would, would ultimately exert over all our lives. I did not know then, and it was a shock to me to discover years later that NASA, which had been created by Eisenhower as this breath of fresh air in this military control effort on space between the, the branch the services, in fact, in its charter was an appendage of the military, an appendage of the Department of Defense. And so I open Dark Mission, which is my 50-year history of NASA, the secret history of NASA, with the statements flat out in the NASA charter which was, you know, um, uh, signed into law by the president, President Eisenhower, in the summer of 1958. 
that in fact NASA is not a civilian agency. It has been a secret military agency all along in the charter subject to not only provisions of the DOD in, 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 in constitution, constitutional law, but actually subject to the DOD in terms of the National Security Advisor to the President and the National Security State that anything that NASA finds, which is deemed after a security review to be a threat to the national security of the country, can be classified, can be kept secret. Well, that right there, you know, is, is the entire game, Kevin. If, you, if you're not a civilian agency and you can't independently publish anything you find in the solar system, but it must go through a military review before it's allowed to be published, then it's not a civilian agency. It is totally under the thumb of the military, and so we have been living with a lie that NASA is a civilian agency for the last half century, and from there it gets much, much worse. Well, that would keep it, wouldn't it, Richard, very compartmentalized, and also, would it not keep it sort of very separate from any you know, current president as well that's in charge? I mean, what would he actually or she actually know? Well, not necessarily, because remember, Eisenhower was what we call fully read in. It was, and, and, and JFK, I'm, I'm totally convinced from the data that JFK was totally read in. It was only after the murder of JFK, who in our model was murdered to keep these NASA secrets and the full details are in dark mission. It was only after John Kennedy was killed on November 22, 1963, that all subsequent presidents appear to have been basically cut out of the loop they're, they're not, their security clearance, if you can believe this, is not high enough to actually know what's really going on, and the military has taken control under various acts and various uh, executive orders that the president has been, has been obviously forced through other circumstances to sign, up to now and including the most onerous one that we're living with called the Patriot Act, which was enacted into law by George W. Bush and the Congress after 9-11. And so we have been on this slippery slope ever since Eisenhower's incredible speech warning us of the creeping control of the military-industrial complex. So now, if anything is going to come out in terms of what's really out there, and we document in Dark Mission a litany of stunning discoveries that NASA has made and has been ordered under law to hide, to sit on, to keep secret in total contravention of its image as a civilian agency for half a century, and that has only gotten worse and worse and worse. So now, when we look at NASA missions, the first thing that we ask here is, what are they going to tell us, and what much more important stuff are they going to continue to hide? Okay, well, we'll look at what's out there in just a minute. But um, is this a, a sort of world government secret? Well, now, that's another extension of this logic. I try, and my colleagues in Enterprise try, to stick with the facts, the things that we can prove, documents, testimony, eyewitnesses, um, you know, uh, testimony on the Hill, court transcripts, um, leaked information that comes from whistleblowers who try to tell the truth, you know, to, to conform to the spirit of what NASA was as opposed to the letter of the law. I cannot extend this to a global situation other than by innuendo because we don't have the proof. We don't have the documents. What I can say is that the United States of America, certainly in terms of the government of Britain, is a 800-pound gorilla in the room. Since World War II, the United States has been the dominant power on this planet. And it's what the United States says basically goes. Just look at your history, open a textbook, go Google, and you'll see that we have led the way in every area, certainly of, of, of the defense against the Russians and the Soviet Empire and the creeping red menace that it used to be called uh, during the Cold War. That still obtains. We're tattered, we're afraid of the edges, we're facing huge financial problems, but we still have the most incredible military on the face of the planet. And I forget which president it was who said, uh, you know, uh, walk softly but carry a big stick. Well, that was Teddy Roosevelt. We don't walk softly and we carry a very big stick. Look at the two wars that we aggressively started 
you know, even though it's ostensibly we were responding to attacks against us in 9-11, if you actually look at what the situation was on the ground in Afghanistan, the CIA created the Taliban and al-Qaeda. If you look at the situation in Iraq, we struck first. There was no reason. Iraq hadn't done a damn thing to us. So we, this 800-pound gorilla, have led the world. So by innuendo, you can say that our intelligence agencies in controlling information are basically controlling what the, what the world is getting to see in terms of what's out there, even though ostensibly you Europeans have your own space agency, ESA, the European Space Agency. There's a Japanese space agency. There's a Chinese. There's Indian. But it looks like America still calls the tune behind the scenes, and that's why the cracks in this shield, the cracks in this facade, the recent cracks in the cover-up, which we document in Dark Mission, and I'm going to be doing in person in Leeds in a few days, um, they are most critical to follow up because that's where truth lies, and that's where a total change in this situation is going to come. Okay, so, Richard, what have they found out there? I mean, what's on the moon, for example? (laughs) Well, we have found, when I say we, you know, the space agency here, NASA, has found the ruins all over the solar system of an incredibly vast, incredibly magnificent, and incredibly dead and ancient extraterrestrial civilization. From my work and the work of many others now, which we've gotten into this game since I started this back in, in the uh, you know, 1990s, 1980s actually, 1983, um, we know now tonight that there are ruins all over the solar system. There are ruins on the moon, there's ancient ruins on Mars, there's ancient ruins on Mercury, there's ruins in the rings of Saturn, there's ruins on moons orbiting Saturn, there's ruins in the asteroid belt. NASA is closing in, even as we speak, uh, on an asteroid, the second largest asteroid in the main asteroid belt, which is this ring of rubble between Mars and Jupiter, you know, something like a quarter billion miles from the sun. This second largest asteroid, Vesta, from the images I'm going to show at Leeds in a few days, is covered with ancient, destroyed, and shattered ruins, and the breath of fresh air. Kevin, this is crucially important. In this 50 years of cover-up of what's really out there, for the first time in its history, NASA is showing us in unaltered form, in the images coming back from this little asteroid called Vesta, which is the size of Connecticut State here in the U.S., something like 300 miles across, they're showing us the ruins in undisguised form on Vesta. So I think a big change is coming, and there is going to be an extraordinary set of experiences for all of us if this model is correct in the next few weeks and months coming up to the date of 2012. Right. And and how old are some of these ruins, do you reckon? Well, we don't have hard data. We don't have ground truth. We don't have samples. The, the, the artifacts that NASA brought back, a la the Apollo missions to the moon, and again, these are covered in dark mission in great detail, uh, have never seen the light of day. We don't have any science. We don't have any dating. We don't have any peer-reviewed papers. We have nothing on the record that gives us any analytical ability to gauge the age. What we have is circumstantial evidence, which, as you know, in courts all over the world, is usually the evidence that convicts people of crimes. You know, it's not like CSI, which is an American TV show, but it, it shows every week that you know, the crime is neatly tied up where there is forensic evidence which absolutely unequivocally convicts the guilty. That's not the way the real world works. CSI is a, is a, is a fictional projection. In the real world, it's circumstantial evidence that most likely convinces a jury to convict the guilty and to... to uh, you know, release the innocent <clears throat> with hopefully enough scientific evidence to to tip the balance of what we call here uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We now have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that NASA has been hiding evidence of extraterrestrial ruins on its imagery, on its sampling data, all over the solar system, and our provisional date for when this incredible ancient civilization was at its high point when it flourished and did astonishing things that have only come down to us now as snips and pieces of legends and mythology. 
is probably on the order of 65 million years. And that's a date that any schoolboy listening to this broadcast tonight is going to remember because that's the date when the dinosaurs on Earth died. The linkage of the end of that civilization and almost the end of life on Earth in a major extinction event are not in our developing model accidental, but in fact are connected to a great cosmic war that was waged with unbelievable technology and weapons, and we in this model are the dim, distant descendants picking up the pieces and climbing back up the ladder of civilization and technology and reaching back into space uh, after a very long time and looking at this incredible travesty of, of junk and ruins and destruction and wondering what in the hell happened. Except we're not doing it in public. We're not having public debates. We're not having the BBC Horizon show doing specials and documentaries on our incredible ancient past. It's all been hushed and covered up, and the space agencies of the world are pretending that there's nothing but rocks and craters and radiation out there, and it's all just natural, and we're the first, and that is the biggest lie of all. But Richard, why have they covered it up, and ah. why why hasn't mainstream astronomy, um, you know, recognized these uh, structures that you have? Well, you can't see this stuff from the ground with Earth-based telescopes. The resolution simply isn't good enough, even with you know what they call uh, adaptive optics and all the neat technical tricks that are now put on major telescopes. You can't see things that are less than miles across, even as they whiz by Earth. So you need spacecraft. You need to physically go. You need to either go into orbit with high-powered cameras or land and bring home samples and photographs and all that. Well, who has done that? It hasn't been the people. It isn't, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX with his private space program that he hopes someday to send astronauts into space. Space has been only accessible via governments. And governments, of course, are a point of total control. There's no way to independently check on what's out there. You have to believe what you were told, unless you have folks who leak stuff out the back door, which we have, and give you clues as to where to look for the databases now in computers all over the world. And a lot of this stuff is now even online because there are whistleblowers inside the system who have been quietly posting the real data. But you have to know, A, to even begin looking and B, you have to know where to look, and then you have to follow the clues politically as to which parts of the system are breaking down and which parts are leaking real information to assemble the tapestry, the matrix, if you will, of the magnitude of the deception historically. I mean, you asked me a moment ago why. Well, we know why. we got a document that tells us why. In the early 1960s, as the handoff was going on between the Eisenhower administration, remember the president who signed NASA into law, and the Kennedy administration, which was picking up the ball and moving it forward, you know, to take uh, in our, you know, uh, heritage of administration handing off to the next elected administration everything under its purview. There is a document which was created by NASA as soon as some of this evidence began to appear. And we call it the Brookings Document. It had a more formal name, but if you go to our website, theenterprisemission.com, and you just uh, type in a search Brookings, it will take you to this document. In fact, you can also do it through Google. Just uh, type in Brookings Report, uh, comma, Enterprise Mission, and it will take you right to the Enterprise Mission web pages where we have reproduced faithfully page after page of this official NASA study which was commissioned through the famed Brookings Institution, which is a major nonprofit private think tank in Washington, D.C., again begun after World War II. And the Brookings report basically says, I'm going to paraphrase now, if you find it, you must hide it because they can't take it. The New York Times, in December of 1961, published a synopsis of the Brookings report on the front page of that issue of the New York Times. Again, this document is on the EnterpriseMission.com website. 
It basically says, government study predicts civilization will collapse if aliens are found in space. That's the lie. The Brookings lie was that if this information was ever made public, that we are not the first, that we have ancient ancestors who built ruins. I mean, Margaret Mead, who was a very famed world anthropologist, who was on the Brookings Commission, and who I actually served with when I was the head of special projects and public affairs at the American Museum of, of Natural History in New York City and at the Hayden Planetarium back in the early 70s. I used to have these wonderful arguments with her. I didn't know she'd been part of Brookings. Heck, I didn't even know then that Brookings existed, that this document existed. But we used to have these arguments in the middle of the night as she was stomping up and down the halls with her big walking stick because she had injured herself in some you know remote field survey at some point, so she had to walk with, with a cane. We had our arguments about if, if civilization would be threatened if humans ever found out they weren't alone. Well, in the, in the report, she actually puts it in black and white. It was felt that if NASA revealed that there were other alien intelligent life forms in space, or, and this is a very important thing, even their libraries of data and information it would destroy human civilization because it would take away the reason that scientists get up every morning and go to work to find out new stuff. In other words, the feeling was, and still is, pervade as, a, as an excuse, that science is so fragile that if scientists discover that they're in fact only going over the same territory and someone has been there long before and has discovered all the major stuff, they wouldn't go to work. They wouldn't want to actually even inquire because someone's done it all before and they're just following the crowd. That's the, the propaganda in this document, which is an official document made public under the Kennedy administration. And that foreshadows why Kennedy was killed from the 87th Congress in the spring of 1961 is when this document came to light because it was published by the U.S. Congress. That's how we got our hands on it. That's why it wound up in federal archives. And it never was supposed to, I believe, contain this crucial section on what NASA should do if it discovered extraterrestrial life, because the document basically recommends that they should hide it, that we can't handle the truth, to quote that very famous movie. But do you think, Richard, that mainstream science won't go along with your, with your theories because, you know, they've got jobs to maintain? Well, that's down the road. Remember, we have two questions to ask. Is Brookings accurate? Is it a correct assessment of human beings? Would we all just give up, particularly scientists, just go into you know, pumping gas at the nearest gas station if it was discovered that they were not the first to, to discover relativity? They weren't the first to discover Newton's laws. They weren't the first to discover the secrets of biological immortality. That, I believe, is another level of the lie. What person, what scientist, what politician, if they're taken in a back room and given the briefing, is going to basically be responsible for the death of civilization? You've got to read the headline and the story in the New York Times. Most people believe, as you know, Kevin, being in the media, most people believe what they read or see or hear in the press or on television. So if someone gives them the briefing, the companions of what they see on television – who is going to be strong enough to stand against it? I remember one example back when I was with CBS where John Chancellor, who was a major figure, major mainstream figure working for one of our competitive networks, NBC, John Chancellor had a huge story uh, on the Department of Defense. He was going to break it as a, as a scoop on the nightly news. Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president who was a successor to Kennedy, literally personally called John Chancellor up and after about an hour conversation convinced John Chancellor to sit on the story for the good of national security. This is how human beings behave. If the leader, if the authority figure, if the titular head of government or the head of your civilization says you will wind up doing irreparable harm, what individual scientist or celebrity or public figure is going to go against that if, in fact, they're shown evidence 
by a bunch of eggheads, people that they think know better than they do, that this, in fact, is what could happen. Most people don't have the balls to go against the establishment that way. They go along with the cover-up because they don't want to be responsible for killing millions of people. Well, do you think we're ready for it, Richard? Yes, overwhelmingly. Because there was another facet to Brookings which was very important, which has always been overlooked. Brookings recommended at the end of this document that, that society, government, the educational system begin a campaign of public education to bring people, the mainstream, ordinary folks, civilians, up the curve so they would not respond and freak out with the idea the human race was not alone. I mean, keep in mind what the media was portraying as aliens and alien contact back in the 1950s. We used to have a term. We called them BEMs, bug-eyed monsters. Remember all those great movies where the aliens came in, invaded, and took over the Earth, and we were toast? That was the cultural mindset of the 1950s when Brookings was written, when this recommendation, which I became, which I think firmly became policy inside government, inside the White House, inside NASA, inside the DOD, firmly became policy, was adopted in the era of the McCarthyism hysterical reaction to the commies, the Soviet Union, the, the, the monsters from across the pole. I mean, we lived in an incredibly fearful society. We then went through a period of openness, and now we're back to being fearful of everything, including under our beds. I mean, look, just this morning, as we're taping this, there was this incredible, terrible explosion in Oslo, Norway. That's right. What's the first reaction everybody had? Ooh, terrorists, terrorists, somebody, bad guys, Al-Qaeda, Arabs, sneaky, slanty-eyed Arabs are doing this. Because people aren't thinking. They're, they're now spring-loaded to instantly respond against an enemy. We have come full circle. The Patriot Act has created a whole new wave of enemies, of fear-mongers, of people we should be deathly afraid. You know the old joke, be afraid, be deathly afraid? Fortunately, people, the ordinary mainstream, if you look at polls, have become more and more open to the idea that, A, we're not alone, and B, they're not a threat, and C, we might actually learn something and catapult ourselves into a totally new historical perspective. And that's because of this education program that was quietly begun to get people to acclimate, to realize that aliens aren't necessarily the bad guys. And we could go down a litany of all the films and all the great directors and producers who have led us to this point where now the people are light years ahead of their governments and the controllers and the people who are trying to instill what I call fear porn around this subject. And you look to films like Contact and E.T. and Star Trek and, you know, all of these stunning 2001, all of these incredible classic films and television shows that depict not the horror and the fear, but the wonder and the majesty of getting in touch with who and what is really out there and reconnecting with who we really are. And I think tonight we're at a defining moment where there is a war going on behind the scenes. Which of those versions of the future is going to prevail? Are we going to stay in our prison, in our box, behind bars, being told fearful tales by those who would control us, or are we going to break out of prison and see what's really out there and the incredible, magnificent civilization we used to be and that we can achieve again? And I think that that's why we're at this moment of historical decision-making where NASA somehow, somewhere, someone is showing us the truth, this incredible breath of fresh air, and the next few weeks and months we may see the resolution of this invisible secret war for our minds and consciousness and our future, and all of us will have to decide which future will we vote for. Well, that's it, Richard. I mean, if you're right, how do we kill the secrecy? By making the truth public. That's why we must, you know, petition from all over the world, NASA, to continue to show us increasingly better and better and better images of these extraordinary ancient ruins on this little asteroid called Vesta, discovered back in the you know, uh, 1700s by Olbers, um, 
and, and, and we must make it public as wide and as loudly as possible in every possible forum, the Internet, radio, conferences. That's why I'm coming to England. I'm coming to Leeds to show people in person on the evening of August 6th at Leeds University this astonishing data, which is official data that NASA is finally providing us, provided the system remains honest. Our vote, our input through the Internet and tons of email, even from the audience that we're talking to now, is critically important, in my opinion, to tip the balance, to tip the scales, to make us vote for freedom as opposed to tyranny. Absolutely. And we're going to put a link on the website uh, for this show, uh, Richard, for your upcoming conference uh, in the UK and obviously your links to your website. Um, but I just want to go back to you, you touched before about the movies and um, you would say then that there's a lot of disinformation and actual real facts embedded within the, the sort of new and upcoming sci-fi movies. And also just tell us a bit about your friend, uh, Gene Roddenberry. Well, Gene and I go way, way, way back. I was, um, you know, obviously in the, let me, let, me, let, me, let me hearken back now. It was the summer of 1960, fall of 68. Oh, no, 60, 65, I believe. Yeah, 65. When, when Star Trek first came on the scene. And, um, I'm sorry, not 68, it was 66. And it was September, and my parents and my family all out were going for one of our few vacations to a summer home we'd rented uh, for a week on, on Cape Cod. And I remember seeing on television a preview of this NBC show called Star Trek. And I looked at it. This was while I was still at the museum, but I hadn't received the call yet from, from Cronkite and those folks. And I looked at the show, and I said, oh, my gosh. I have to stay home because there was no TV out of the Cape. I had to stay home, and what I did is I stayed home and I drove down separately to join my family, you know, days later so I could literally watch that first Star Trek show. And I watched it and I looked at it and I said, oh my God, I've got to get in touch with the guy who did this. And it was shortly after that that we, we discovered that Star Trek was a brief experiment on NBC that because of ratings, NBC was going to cancel. And so I got roped into, through people like Fred Pohl and Isaac Asimov and other names that I'm sure will be familiar to some of the audience, um, a Save Star Trek campaign using a little radio station and a radio show that I had in the afternoons, in addition to my work at the museum as curator of astronomy and space science in the latter years of 19. 66, 67, and, and 68. And we wound up, remember, this is no internet, no email, no national ability to connect everybody through Facebook and Twitter and all that. This is the hard way, phone calls and snail mail. We assembled enough people to bombard NBC with enough letters to convince them to do something that no television network in the entire history of television had ever done to reverse their decision, and to save Star Trek. And that was how I got to know Gene Roddenberry. Uh, I literally called him up in Hollywood one day, and I said, uh, he answered the phone. And that was the beginning of our friendship and our professional association. I wound up being an unofficial advisor, a science advisor, to the original Star Trek. There are certain things in Star Trek and the scripts, particularly those that were written by D.C. Fontana, that are directly due to our conversations where I pointed out, you know, God, I was, what, 19 back then? The things they were doing in the show that were wrong in terms of projection because they had experts from JPL and NASA giving them information. Well, some of the information was not correct, and some of it, even then, they weren't, they weren't properly implementing. So Gene took certain recommendations, and they got, they got it on the scripts. And someday it's, it'll be fun maybe if I do a public presentation where I run some of the Star Trek clips and I show people individually some of my suggestions that wound up on the screen. Gene actually sent me tapes at my request of Alexander Courage's Star Trek music. Back again, this was unheard of, where you would have a, uh, a TV show providing a private institution like a museum um, music or, or video. We call it video now. There were no videotape recorders back then. There were 
literally audio tape recorders. So he would send me these these reel-to-reels with Alexander Courage's music, and I would play them in the planetarium for the star shows that I would write and create for the general public so they had the only Star Trek music in the planetarium anywhere in the world. I also would use some of the plot points on the show on Friday following the nightly Star Treks on Thursday once a week. I would use it on my radio show as a way to discuss science and space and history and how the plots are really thinly thinly disguised uh, morality plays, which is what science fiction has always has been. Sure. And I would regale them with some stories of the stars who actually would came came by my radio show and dropped in and 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 did interviews. I had Spock, you know, Leonard Nimoy. I had William Shatner, Captain Kirk. Um, I also had a lot of other other celebrities, people who worked for John Kennedy back then, uh, who were senior advisors to the Kennedy administration. Because even then, I had this extraordinary fondness for the Kennedy people because Kennedy had done something that no one had thought to do up to then to bring sci-fi into the mainstream, i.e. to commit America, the United States, to go to the moon in 1960-61. And I realized even then that this was pivotally important. Of course, now, as I say in Dark Mission, we understand why it was important, why he did it, what he was trying to achieve, and why he was ultimately killed to keep the secret, to keep us in chains, to keep us imprisoned on this one planet, not knowing our real heritage. Well, Star Trek was a breath of fresh air where Gene Roddenberry could explore what might happen if the extraordinary benefits and riches and heritage of space were opened freely to all mankind. And so Star Trek became, for me, and was for him, a kind of a, a, a tale of what could go right and that's why I now had something called the Enterprise Mission in both Gene's honor and his name and Star Trek's lineal heritage of going boldly where no one had gone before. And that's why we're having this conversation. So did Gene ever tell you anything that sort of stood out? And also, is it true that Gene uh, sort of uh, tranced, well, not, not himself, but had people trance this information through about what's out there? And, and a lot of the facts that are in Star Trek, they are actually true. You know, if you'd asked me this maybe five, six years ago, I would have given you a very different answer. I think Gene was one of the insiders. I think Star Trek was not an accident that Gene, because of his own career, his own life history, his own reasons for doing television, was specifically selected to create Star Trek to basically be a voice for reality in a sea of insanity where the cover-up was everywhere. And you can get away with anything, Kevin, as you know, if you portray it as fiction. I think there was, and I'll use a Heineck term that he used with me when I met him and worked with him for many years. He used the term, and Jacques Vallée uses it also, the so-called invisible college. I think there has been this kind of loose confederation of people on the inside who have been brought to the inside who know, who know what's really out there, who've been shown information, documents, whatever, and have been, in, in, you know, conscripted or recruited into a confederation of truth-tellers who tried to bring up, a la Brookings, an entire generation on the possibilities, the upside extraordinary possibilities of our real heritage and finding out the truth. And... And years later, after Gene had died, I found out a lot of information which really, in my mind, moves me in the direction of that model. Just before Gene died, a few years before he died, back in the early 80s, as I was beginning to grapple with the realities of Sidonia, what's on Mars, the idea that NASA had been lying to us. I mean, initially, the first idea was not that NASA was lying, I just thought they were incredibly narrow-minded and, you know, like all scientists, incredibly conservative, and they just couldn't handle the truth, and it was just too big. It was, it was something that was so easy to, to explain away. They were overlooking the data. But after your thousandth or millionth data point, you get to the point where you realize, particularly when you find out the history of Brookings, no, they're not dumb. They're not ignorant. They're not, you know, honest people. They're literally telling 
conscious lies and manipulating the truth with the people around them being the honest souls. I mean, I've said again and again and again, 90% of NASA is honest. Most of the people who, who go to bed tonight and work for NASA don't have a clue that what I'm saying is the truth. They themselves have been lied to. They believe their compatriots, their colleagues, their superiors, their, their you know, branch managers, their senior, you know, public uh, uh, relations people, their, their uh, uh, project officials, their project scientists, their principal investigators who are the scientists who are in charge of these missions, who, of course, have to know the truth, otherwise they couldn't tell the lies so skillfully. So it's a tiny minority in NASA that's manipulating everybody else in NASA in favor of the lie by keeping the truth at bay and keeping it in suspension. Well, I had one data point before Gene passed on that Gene somehow knew a lot more and could be involved in a truth brigade secretly inside to bring this to the American people and to the world's attention. I was supposed to do a novelization with a very famous author. Well, I can probably tell you who it was. It was Whitley Strieber. We had a major prospect of a million-dollar advance to do a novelization of my early Sidonia work, up until Whitley wanted to move into the position in the novel, which was going to be based, uh, patterned after one of his very famous novels called War Day, uh, where I would be basically chronicled in the novel as a serious scientist and researcher investigating the monuments of Mars against an overwhelming uh, skeptical and very hostile scientific community. At a point in our discussions and our negotiations for how we would write this, at one point suddenly Whitley wanted to put himself in the position of the truth teller, of the guy who had figured out the reasons for the monuments of Mars, the the, the civilization that I had found on, on Mars. Instead, he wanted to be the one to find it in the novel. And the million-dollar advance went down to $10,000, at which point I said, thanks, Whitley, but no thanks. I said, these discussions are at a close. So now I'm sitting there in Berkeley, California, with a bunch of data, thinking about maybe someday doing a book myself, a nonfiction book, um, having had this extraordinary opportunity both money and fame and, and visibility for the investigation flying out the window, and I'm thinking, who, and, who, who can I turn to with that much celebrity who might help me do this again in the same parlance but keep the integrity of what we had planned uh, on, 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 on track? Yeah. So I picked up the phone and I called Gene, and I went down and saw him. And after our conversation, he looked at me and he said, Dick, at this time in my life, I do not want to disturb my life. And I looked at him and I said, what? He said, no. He said, I, 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 I cannot do it. I don't want And he used that phrase. It was a very weird phrase for a Hollywood producer, director. Disturb my life? I mean, it's like we're, we're talking fiction here. This is the guy who created Star Trek. That's I realized now in hindsight, putting other dots together, that what he was telling me between the lines is he was an insider. His role, his mission, was to tell the truth, as Emily Dickinson used to say, but tell it slant. Yes, there are extraordinary swaths of reality in Star Trek, not only the original, but something he did in an unprecedented fashion that even I didn't think he'd be able to pull off, which was to create the sequel to Star Trek, which had even more truth and was even more popular, which was Star Trek Next Generation. And then the entire franchise, you know, Voyager and Enterprise and Deep Space Nine and on and on and on, the Star Trek universe laid out. Well, what Gene was telling me, I now know, is that he was an insider, and if he had par uh, companioned himself with me, even in a novelization of fiction vis-a-vis -vis the ruins on Mars at Sidonia, leading to all the other stuff that we eventually found, it would unduly use his phrase, complicate his life. So yes, I firmly believe that he, Gene Roddenberry, was an insider and had a mission. The mission was to basically blow the doors off Brooking and bring people into the 23rd century so they can handle the truth. And he wasn't the only one. I look back now and I know now that my friend, my dear friend Arthur Clark, 
was another one. My dear friend Isaac Asimov, who often referred to me as his son while he was still alive, was another one. That many of the greats, if not most of the greats of the science fiction world from the 40s and 50s and 60s and, and later were in fact part of this invisible college of truth-tellers who through their fiction, and in Arthur's case through, through some of his nonfiction, were trying desperately to mature the human race to the point where, in the eyes of Brookings, we could handle the truth. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're getting uh, very close to the end of the interview here, and there's so much I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, <laughs> well, we, could, we can do it again sometime. I think we're, I think we're going to have to. Know. Um, because, uh, you know, there was the uh, breakaway, you know, space race going on that I wanted to talk about. There was just so much. And um, uh, one thing I just wanted to touch on as well is, I mean, you said in the, in the interview earlier on about 2012, you do believe this to be a time of, of great change for us and, and a lot of um, um, secrets being revealed, would you say? Well, you have to look. Look, we have, we have a terrible history of demeaning and destroying and, and making non-persons indigenous peoples all over the world. Modern white guys, imperialists, and it, it, a major part of it comes from Britain back in the 18th century, went all over the planet, dominated all indigenous cultures, destroyed their, their heritage, their documents, their belief systems, their priesthoods, their rituals, their mythologies, and replaced it with a technocratic, uh, basically colonial civilization until that collapsed, and now you have these indigenous peoples bereft of their own culture, their own history, trying to put the pieces together and come up with some kind of democracies where people are in charge finally in their long histories. It is in that milieu that we have to look at the Mayans and what the Mayans were trying to tell us. The Mayans have said, with information that is great controversy over, it's like, how did the Mayans know? But the Mayans projected the end of their calendrical system, this phenomenally accurate incredibly ancient system that they themselves claim goes back thousands of years. There is a transition, the end of a world age coming up in a little over a year and a half, on December 21, 2012. And a lot of discussion has gone on in books, in print, and television, and mostly on the Internet, on YouTube videos, really, that this presages some terrible, dramatic, catastrophic thing which is the end of the world. They call it end times, you know. And I call it fear porn. Because if you look at the Mayan documentation, if you look at the works of people like John Major Jenkins and uh, Johan Kalaman, who I had the pleasure of doing a video conference with a few weeks ago, you find a very different story. The Mayans aren't telling us about the end of the world. They're talking about the end of a world consciousness a transformation, a change, a, a literal doorway which we will walk through as human beings to where things are looked at and perceived and understood differently on the other side. Now, there's no time in the, in the few minutes we have remaining for me to document the fact that I believe that there is a physics basis for that Mayan projection. It's called hyperdimensional torsion physics, I document it in detail in Dark Mission, particularly in Chapter 2, which is very extensive, has several parts. It involves actual measurements in the field, which is one of the reasons I'm coming to England in a couple of weeks, or actually now in a few days, to measure the physics of Stonehenge and Avebury and Old Sarum and some other monuments, and hopefully even a crop circle or two, because when I took these measurements in Central America, in Mayan country, at Teotihuacan and Tikal in Guatemala. I got stunning readings, scientifically reproducible quantitative readings of this unseen hyperdimensional torsion field physics that no one has ever done in public before. And it was on an NBC special, which wound up on sci-fi a couple of years ago, called The Secrets of 2012. Secrets Revealed, I guess. So I'm going to continue that work when I come to England in a few days. But the bigger, the bigger frame is, if the Mayans were correct in predicating a change of consciousness, 
and our work, our beginning preliminary work is correct, that there is a physics basis for a change of consciousness. That is why there would be this incredible tumult now about NASA finally revealing to a changing consciousness of a changing world the truth of what is out there. All these curves are crossing at the same point, and we're in the run-up. We're in the countdown period to the cultural and consciousness transformation that might be presaged by 2012, including such things as critical presidential decisions, which is why I'm focusing on what our president is doing and what he is proposing to do. Because just a few weeks ago, in the midst of a tremendous amount of political controversy over the, the beginning of the so-called Libyan campaign, the Libyan war, out of the blue, in a stark, un- inexplicable uh, contradiction, a bunch of Mayan elders got together and blessed President Obama's future decisions on behalf of the planet, on behalf of the world. The same president who flew to Norway a few years ago to pick up a Nobel Peace Prize for things admittedly he hadn't carried out yet. And now we have this weird, bizarre bombing in Norway, in Oslo, on the anniversary of the 42nd landing of man on the moon. Is it not potentially possible that these apparently disconnected events, these dots, in fact, are ultimately deep down in a subterranean way intimately connected and that our president is about to make a major decision based on a NASA mission to a tiny asteroid which is beaming back the truth. All I can say, Kevin, is we should stay closely tuned. And I'll be showing you that proof in Leeds in a few days. Absolutely, Richard. And, you know, you're just a fascinating man. And I really want to get you back on to, to look at these other subjects in more in depth because there's so much we haven't covered. We've, we've covered the basics here. And, um, you know, uh, time is, uh, has uh, uh, come to an end here right now. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I certainly appreciate the time. and I look forward to seeing you in England in a few days. Absolutely. And I look forward to talking to you again and very soon. To find out more information on Richard C. Hoagland, just go to enterprisemission.com or look up Richard C. Hoagland under past guest on the moreshow.co.uk website. Now don't forget you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and that we have a TV show which is on every Friday at 6pm on Sky 201 and FreeSat 403. So until next time, be safe.